fun fact, I was Connor's roommate before Hannah was. <laughs> he said, there's this girl named Hannah, she's really cool, I want to talk to her, go talk to her. I think she's got a boyfriend. I said, people break up all the time, man. <laughs> and so, next week she's single. Anyways, you're welcome, I take full credit. <laughs> The summer of grade nine, I worked at a summer camp. It was one of those camps where it's a Bible college during the year, and the summer it's a camp. I worked there, and the best part of it, besides the sleep deprivation and the tater tots, was that one of the Bible college students was assigned to me to disciple me the whole summer. So he would counsel me, he would ask me hard questions, he would lead me in prayer, give me passages to memorize, help me develop a Bible reading plan for questions that I wanted to answer. I think it was one of the most formative times in my life. It's kind of when you leave home in that gap, your faith can kind of grow the distance as you grow in independence as well. And I think I'm the man that I am today because of it. Now, a month into that summer, I received a phone call from my parents and they said, hey, mom has been seeing a doctor. She's been getting some scans and some tests and it turns out that she has glaucoma. And 14 years old, I thought glaucoma was a form of cancer. It's like leukemia, lymphoma, glaucoma, it's all the same. It's, it's funny now, it wasn't funny then. Thanks for laughing. And, <laughs> and, and I thought that my mother had just received a terrible terminal diagnosis. And what happened, the only way I can describe it is I felt like I was underwater. I kind of turned inwards into this cold, numbing state, wasn't really present in conversations, couldn't focus on my tasks, spiritual things, were the last thing on my mind. And I was very confused. I thought, hey, you know, I'm finally stepping out. My faith is becoming my own. I'm giving up a whole summer. I'm not making money. I'm, I'm serving God. And then, and then this happens? The, the rug gets pulled out from underneath me. I start following you and my world just caves in. It goes upside down. Why? does this happen once I finally try and do something good with my life? You might be familiar with these things. You step out, God calls you to do something, to say something. You try and take your next step, get things under control. And one thing terrible happens or 10 things at once. It can, it can raise this question in our heart. How can I trust God in my pain? How can I trust God in my pain? How can I have faith in the fire. If I'm doing what you say and things actually go from bad to worse, what's, what's the point of following you at all? And the fog of war, this chaos can cause us to retreat, or we can retreat and recant, or we can despair and doubt. How do I trust God in the midst of all this? All these bad things that are happening. When you say you love me, you're good, you're for me, not against me. If you've ever wrestled with that question, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our series called In the Arena. We've been going through Ephesians 6, kind of looking at what Paul refers to as the armor of God. It's not, it's not literally armor. He's referring to things that we as Christians now have that God has given us to walk through the conflict in this world. He says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. You might hear this referred to as spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis, in 
His book, The Screwtape Letters, he says, you know, there's the twin sins. Either people see devils and demons behind every bush, you know, like I was burning a Metallica CD and I heard demons hissing. And you're like, no, no, okay. Or perhaps more in the West, we're completely desensitized to, to any supernatural causation. It's purely natural causes in this way. And Paul is trying to draw our attention to the fact that we are in a real conflict, a real war zone. And if we're trying to join God in his redemption of all things, you're going to come up against some stuff. And God has given us the armor that we need, not to step back, but to step into the fray. We looked at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Last week, we looked at the the shoes that come from the readiness of the gospel of peace. That because we have peace with God, we get peace from God. This objective reality leads to a subjective state that gives us protection, it gives us traction, and it gives us a sure-footingness, a lightness to respond to the things around us. Today we're looking at the next piece of the armor. So would you join me in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Okay, and here's our verse for today. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That phrase literally means over all of these things, over all of these other pieces, take up this shield of faith. Paul is outlining that if you are in Christ, you have absolutely all that you need. In Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be God, the Lord of our Father, Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing under heaven. It's past tense. He's given it all. In Ephesians 2, he says, God has seated us with Christ at the right hand of the Father. The right hand was the place of the most power. You were the the VP, the prime minister. It was also the place of greatest intimacy because you had the king's ear. Paul is saying you already have been given everything you need. These aren't upgrades you unlock as you go throughout the game. This is the scandal of grace. You get it all. If you compare this to other religious systems, it might be that you live a righteous life and then you present it to God. Look what I've done. But it's upside down in Christianity. Jesus lived a righteous life, and he presents it to us. That is the scandal of grace. That's what we see in this armor of God. Now, a Roman soldier's shield was literally a door. The word they use for it is that thing which blocks a doorway. It wasn't a cute little round shield that you see kids with trash cans and sticks and all that. It was about five feet high, two and a half feet wide. It was meant to protect your whole body. And unlike the other parts of the armor, you know, you're always keeping your helmet on, your breastplate, your shoes, your sword. The door was only used, the door, pardon me, the shield was only used in very specific times in the battle. It's when you were assailing the wall of the enemy fortress. When you were right up against the wall, didn't matter if you outnumbered them 10 to 1, you were the most vulnerable and they were the most desperate. They were up high, you were down low, and they would throw things at you. Okay, balcony, don't get any ideas. (laughs) They would pour hot tar, they would shoot flaming arrows, flaming darts. 
to cause chaos, to cause panic, because it's not just one of your comrades going down, but they're literally going up in flames. So the shield was to protect you from all these. They would soak it in water. They would put hides and fabric on it so that the flaming darts would hit it. The flames would dissipate. It wouldn't cause panic, and it wouldn't cause a retreat in this way. In the Bible, the, the language of fire, the language of these arrows, it usually refers to trials and tribulation and suffering. You can read this broadly and look at it as doubt and temptation, but the language in the New Testament and what you see in the Old Testament is fire being trials, being suffering, being tragedy in this way. In 1 Peter chapters 1 and 3, we'll look at it later, it says, don't be surprised when trials and tribulation come this way. This is a refining fire like gold in the flames. In the book of Revelation, that exact same word for refining is used to describe the church. The church will be beautiful, like gold refined in fire. You see this in Malachi 3. Jesus will be the one who will refine and purify his people. You see this in Isaiah 43. It says, though you walk through the flames, they will not overtake you in this way. This seems to be a reoccurring image. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So think about metal ore that goes through the fire. If you're in a cave and you smack it with a pickaxe, it doesn't just spit out a bar of gold at the bottom like a vending machine. There's big chunks and it's gold mixed in with other parts of the ore in the cave. And it's not really usable like that. You can't propose with that. Just me like you. Here. Doesn't work. She's going to give it back. Try again. So there's a refining process that has to happen. If you put it in heat and it's at the right temperature for the right amount of time, the gold will begin to separate from all the dross, all the pebbles, all the specks, all the flakes. And now it exists in a state of potential. Before, it, it didn't have potential for anything. And now it has potential that it can be used for something. It can be formed. It can be created into something beautiful in this way. And that's the language that God is using for these trials. In the fire, we're separated from the things. An example of this, one of the great examples, is the book of Job. Summarize it quickly if you haven't read it before. There's a guy named Job, very wealthy. He's got a large family. He's got property. He's got goats. He's probably got other animals too. He has all these things. And Satan approaches God and says, hey, this guy Job... He doesn't really love you. He's not really your servant. He just likes your stuff. He says, hey, does he serve you for nothing? He doesn't really serve you. Uh, he just wants the benefits. He says that Job is a hypocrite. Why? Because a real servant uses things and loves God. But a hypocrite loves things and uses God. He says, let me, let me send some trials his way. Let me take away the blessings. And I'll show you that he's really a hypocrite. Satan looks at you and says, hey... You don't really love God. You just like his stuff. He accuses of hypocrisy. How can you tell the difference between a hypocrite and a, a genuine believer? They kind of look visually equivalent on the outside. But it's only in the, the tribulation that we're separated from the chaff in this way. And so, 
God gives him permission. He says, you can do this and this, but nothing else. You can go no farther. He draws a line in the sand. This isn't a great cosmic battle. This looks like a dog on a leash. God says, you can go this far. And so he takes away his family. He takes away his wealth. He takes away his health. And Job comes right up to the line. But he does not sin. He wails. He says, I curse the day I was born. He pours out his, his frustration and his anger and his questioning. And his friends respond in different ways, all unhelpful. One of them says, yo, Job, God must be mad at you, man. What'd you do, man? You forget to tithe? Did you take a toonie from the plate? God's punishing you. He doesn't love you. Another friend said, you're wrong to speak out this way against God. You're wrong to tell him that you're frustrated. You're wrong to tell him that you're angry. And God comes at the end of the book and he vindicates Job. He says, Job has not sinned in this state. He says, you have spoken wrongly of me, but I will listen to Job's prayers and he will pray for you and I will listen to him in this way. Perhaps the example of Peter is a bit more relatable to us. Job had something great that was taken away. Peter had dreams of something great, and his dreams and his hopes were taken away. Jesus came to him, and he said, hey, Peter, I want you to come. I want you to join me. Be my disciple. Come as we transform the world, as we bring this extension of the kingdom of heaven. And what did Peter think that would be? Stretch limos. Go into the Mandarin every Wednesday night. A seat at the cabinet overthrowing the Roman soldiers, destroying them, raising Israel to this glorious state. He thought that's what it would look like. But Jesus wasn't calling him to that. Yeah, maybe they could have overthrown the Romans and had a year of peace or a decade of peace. Jesus had very different priorities. He said, I want to destroy death itself. I want to overthrow evil and sin once and for all. So that doesn't look like being glorified. I'm actually going to be outcast. I'm going to be tortured, beaten, bloodied, bruised, and crucified. And this will lead to liberation for billions of people. But when Jesus died, so did Peter's hopes of his preferred future. And so he denied Jesus three times. In the book of Luke, Jesus looks across the courtyard and he says to him, Satan wanted to have you so he could sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that when you turn, you may strengthen the brethren. I told him you can come this far and no further. And when you come back, you will be stronger for it. And you will be a great leader because you're able to speak of the disappointment. You're able to speak of the hurt. And the more that you want to transform this world, the more you're going to be outcast, the more you're going to be mocked, the more you're going to have these good things taken from you, and you're going to die the death of a criminal. But it's going to bring an unbelievable blessing in this way that you never could have experienced otherwise. I wish we had an hour to go into all this. But when we look at this for ourselves, there's at least two things that you can see. The first thing that we see is this, simply that God lets Satan send us fiery trials. It's very clear in the Bible. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He lets him send these fiery trials in this way. The aim is to get you to panic to get you alarmed, to get you to retreat. Like I turned inward in this numb state. Spiritual things were the last thing on my mind in this way. The aim of these trials is to make you turn and run from where God was calling you to. But there's always two purposes in the, in the trials. Why would God allow this to happen then? There's always two purposes. Satan wants the fire to destroy you. God wants the fire to refine you. That's what Joseph says. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And how this turns out, the Bible says, is actually, in a large part, up to us. 
Job could have held on to his beliefs, his idea of this is what my life should be, this is what the good life is, this is what my best life looks like, and if he held on to that, he would have been destroyed. But he opened up his hands. He released his grip on these idols, these things that he thought would sustain him in this way, these things that can't walk through the fire with you. Only the the one God who came and was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the only God that will make it through the fire with you as your other false gods, your other false idols burn up and are destroyed in this way. God wants the fire to refine you. This is the shield of faith, trusting in the midst of it that I don't understand. I don't have an idea of how this is supposed to work out. But in my loss, in my heartbreak, as this relationship falls apart, as I lose my job, as we wrestle with the miscarriage, I can know that Satan wants this to destroy me. But God will use this for his glory and my good. There's a couple other types of imagery we see in scripture of how God does this. There's the the imagery of the refiner, which we kind of studied. There's the image of the vine dresser, the pruning, and also the imagery of the father. In terms of the vine dresser, Jesus says this in John 15:1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I was at my friend's house. His grandfather pulled up in a truck, walked up to this apple tree, and just started breaking off branches. And I thought, that man needs therapy. What is he doing? He's breaking off all these branches, snapping it. What are you doing, man? Chill out. You're going to destroy it. And he said, no, you don't understand. If I don't prune it, it will die. I'm not taking it back one inch too far. For every branch, for every twig, for every beautiful blossom, I know two will come back in its place. So he prunes. When you're pruning a tree, you're taking away the things that the life is going into that's sucking the life out of it. And you remove those so the vitality can go to the right things. In these trials, God is opening up our hand, releasing us from these things that we think will save us, that we think will give us life. And he says, that's not for you. And I love you, so I'm going to do this for you. The last type of imagery that's used, uh, not, not the only type, but for today, is this imagery of a parent, this imagery of a father. God uses this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? In the ancient world, sons had all the legal rights and status. So this author is scandalous in saying that both men and women have this legal status as sons. Fun fact, let's keep reading. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is the scary verse. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I've been thinking a lot about parenting lately. My wife and I were mostly here 22 weeks along having a baby. We found out it's a girl. It's all right. Um, <laughs> I have no comment. That is my, it's my fiery trial. It's just emotion. <laughs> I've been thinking, we think about parenting, got some books, trying to do some research, and you know, how do you, how do you get the kid to sleep? How do you get the kid to eat? How do you get it to go to the bathroom in this way? And so there's different types of parenting strategies and techniques. Some of these we know from training a dog. That's, that's the same thing. The, <laughs> the first that you do is positive reinforcement. You say, yay, good job. You praise them, you encourage them, give them a Cheerio, maybe a little Pop-Tart or something. Never, in desperate situations. It's the first thing that you do. Perhaps you can model behavior for them. It's, no, 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 let me help you, let me help you. Watch how Papa does it, and now you do it too. That's another thing you can do. 
But there's never been a child that's been brought up to full maturity as an adult with only positive reinforcement. Sometimes there has to be forms of discipline from the parent as well. And what is discipline but controlled suffering? Hey, you lied to your mom? Okay, you can't go out with your friends tonight. You gotta do some chores around the house. Maybe it's time to go on timeout. Why? Because I'm gonna give you a little bit of suffering now because you have no clue the amount of suffering and damage and pain you will cause if you're still a liar 30 years from now. So because I love you, I'm going to let you suffer in this small way because you don't know the ultimate suffering this could bring. And if the ultimate suffering you can encounter as a human being is eternal separation from God, then what right does he have to do anything up to that point to free us from that destination? Or even just removing a good thing because something is better. What if, what if you were offered a better job far away and your child is best friends with the kid next door and you say, I'm sorry, we need to move across the country because I've got a, a new job and my salary is going to go from 30000 to 100000 The kid says, why would you do this to me? Why would you take this from me? That's my friend. Do you hate me? How could you do that? They don't understand the difference in the salary. It's a couple more ice cream cones. They don't, they don't understand that. But the parent is something better for them. And what's the gap between us and God? If you look at the gap of understanding between a child and a parent, what's it between us and an eternal father in glory? Because he knows what it's like to be a human. Christ came, we have an empathetic high priest, but we don't know what it's like to be him in his perspective in this way. So to take comfort in God's sovereignty requires humility. The cost of entry to rest in providence is humility in this way. That's the first thing that we see. And I, I hope this doesn't come across as some cheap little statement on stage. I know this, this is hard and this does not change the pain at all. God doesn't always give us a little silver bullet philosophical solution. We don't always have access to God's reasons, but we have access to his heart. And so I can say, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I trust you, but I don't get it but I believe who you are and I believe you're with me in all this. Which brings us to our second point, which is this. Faith is something active. It's something that you use. It's not something passive in this way. A shield is something that you raise. And that shield covers all the other parts of the armor. The shield of faith is what I raise to protect me when I feel like the truth is under assault. These bad things are happening. Maybe God isn't who he said he was. How can you be all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and yet these evil things happen in the world? Can't you stop it? Don't you want to stop it? Can't you figure out a way? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to guard the truth of who I know he is and, and my righteousness that he says he is pleased with me, that I am declared new, I'm adopted into his family, and I might feel like he's mad at me or he's punishing me, but I trust that he is who he says he is. And the peace, I'm going to use this faith to guard this readiness that I have because faith is active. Faith is an active trust. And trust is earned. Trust is earned. It's not something passive. It's something active. There's a beautiful quote from the missionary who was martyred in Ecuador. His name was Jim Elliott. And he said this, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why does God allow these things to happen? Because we are fools. We don't want to let go of the things 
that will not sustain us ultimately. So he allows us to walk through the fire. And the fire is where the idea of God becomes the relationship with God. It's not some distant, abstract concept, but he's the person. Because when everything else was gone, he was there. And I knew him more and I sensed him closer than I ever did. That when I was driving my Ferrari, I was not singing God's praises. But when there was the accident and I lost my family member, I could say that the Lord is my portion, that my heart and flesh may fail, but he is enough. And I only knew that when I had nothing left in this way. That's the link between suffering and glory. It says in Philippians 2, just like it says in the song by John Wesley, mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die. That Jesus laid aside his glory and he took on the suffering. He was beaten, bloodied, and bruised, nailed to the cross so that we could be free. So Paul can say to the church in Ephesus, I am in prisons, but I do this for you. Because now he can suffer like Jesus. Because Jesus suffered the ultimate pain, the ultimate separation, so we don't have to. So anything we suffer now will only make us more like him. Just like a diamond is turned from coal in the pressure. We know that these things that are happening on earth will only make us more beautiful in this way. To raise the shield of faith is to say that I'm going to trust in God, that all of my dreams and ideas for how my life should go, what the good life is, this is just tinsel. It's just straw. It's chaff compared to the glory of who he is and what he has for me. Faith is looking not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And faith is the assurance of things not seen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for these gifts, this inheritance that we have in you, not because of anything we did, but because of who your son is and what he accomplished. God, we confess that so often um, forget these things, that when the pain comes, I'm very tempted to retreat, to recant, to go inwards and not outwards. Would you help us, like a legion of Roman soldiers, to keep these shields up and even protect one another in the midst of these trials, these tribulations, that we have the faith to step into it, to trust that you are who you say you are, that your way is higher and better and that you are true and good and that you do this because you love us like the refiner, the vine dresser, the good father that you are. Would you give us the faith to trust you in the midst of all this, that we wouldn't waste our suffering, but that you would use it for your glory and for our good. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship?